Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And for this episode, we have the brilliant Olwyn Collinson, a digital historian who you may know because he runs the massive real-time World War II Twitter account. It's got over half a million followers, and they live tweet the events of the Second World War each day as they happen. Now, they're on 1943 at the moment, so we thought we'd get him on the Warfare podcast to tell us about why 1943 was such an important year. It turns out it is the year that everything happens and the Allies really start to take shape and the plans start to pay off. It's when the victories start to roll out and the Germans start to roll back and the Americans start to take on the Japanese with any serious force as well. In essence, it's arguably the year the war was won. So here he is, the brilliant Alwyn Collinson on 1943. Hi, Orwin. Thank you so much for coming on the Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. It's uh, slightly sunny, which is a major breakthrough. Good. Is that over in Oxford? Yes, that's right. That's where I live and work. Yes, you work in digital history at Oxford. So has the term started? Are staff and students back in person? No, we've actually just ended what is now, I suppose, the third term in a row of mostly virtual learning. Uh, there are many students here because a lot of them are going to labs, using libraries, that sort of thing, but uh, they are restricted from meeting in person for the time being. Yes, I suppose if you're, if you're a historian, you don't technically need to be in class. You can do that over Zoom, teaching-wise, I suppose. I suppose that's the idea. I mean, mind you, if you looked at my attendance at lectures when I was an undergrad, I suspect you might think that I also technically wasn't really there either. <laughs> well, maybe this is why you've become a, a digital historian, so that you can uh, keep that distance between the in-person lectures and that kind of research. But actually, I know we're meant to be here to talk about 1943, such an important year for the war, and we will get around to that, I promise. But tell me a little bit about this idea of digital history. What is it to be a digital historian? Well, it's a really interesting question. And I suppose part of what makes the field very exciting is that that's a question that's still being answered. You know, digital history, digital humanities that I work in more broadly. I, I do uh, technical and, and kind of uh, administrative assistance to get digital projects going. You know, it's about applying digital techniques to traditional rigorous academic study. And that could mean crowdsourcing, for example, using kind of, you know, lots of different members of the public who are connected digitally. 
to find, you know, historical stories, to analyze historical texts, to transcribe historical manuscripts. Those are uh, very powerful. It could mean using quantitative techniques, you know, using the power of digital technology to take a really rigorous and kind of um, quantitative approach to breaking down historical events in terms of, you know, you put a database together that has a vast selection of records of any sort. And then you say, you know, how, what percentage of German soldiers were posted to the Eastern Front, you know, what percentage of weapons that were made in Germany were destroyed before they ever saw combat, just to keep the the subject matter on point. Or it, it could also mean, you know, widening access to historical information. So one of the sort of most common forms of digital history is of engagement, of trying to take information that is, uh, to some extent, hidden away in books or academics or wherever else you keep your history and uh, make it as accessible to a wide audience as possible. And I've also worked in museums in the past. And, you know, that's an area, obviously, where the idea of digitizing collections, of putting them online, often hopefully for free and for public reuse and access, you know, it's a fantastic way of democratizing the study of something that concerns us all. So when I'm stuck in my research and I can't find it in a book somewhere and I can't get to the archives of the library at the moment, and in desperation, I tweet out, does anyone know where I can find more information about this or this person or this date? Am I doing digital history? 100%. Everyone listening to this podcast at this moment is doing digital history. Ah. And it's a particularly apposite point, of course, because this last year has, for very obvious reasons, made it very difficult to get physically to archives, to attend conferences, to take oral history interviews, you know, all of these kind of traditional means of gathering and accessing data, doing academic research, whether it's being done in an academic institution or not. Those have just become, if not impossible, very difficult. So I think we're seeing more now than ever how important uh, digital methods are for historians. So what about other forms of digital media? Things like video games, like Call of Duty, is that digital history? I would certainly argue so. I mean, all of those AAA video games, the ones that are produced by major studios and kind of, you know, have these huge releases, you know, millions of players, they have historical consultants on board. They have, you know, professional historians who are making sure that you're holding the right kind of gun, that, you know, you're seeing the right kind of uniform. You are seeing things that might conceivably have been seen on whichever battlefield your particular, you know, version of the game is being set. Or at least if you're not seeing them, it's not the fault of the historical consultants. And I think that it's really interesting that along with films and television, video games are probably the most common way nowadays for people, particularly young people, to learn about major events like the Second World War. You know, those forms of digital outreach, although I'm sure studios don't necessarily think of them as such, you know, they are forming the bedrock of public understanding of, let's say, the Second World War. But they're also you know, in many ways, setting the agenda, not necessarily for academic historians, but for the way as a society, we think about and understand the events of the past. And particularly because video games are so immersive, if you feel like you have stormed the beaches of Normandy, uh, whether that was by watching Saving Private Ryan or by doing it in uh, Call of Duty or Battlefield or what have you, then I think it means that, you know, you, you're going to feel like your interest, your awareness of that is framed through that perspective. And I think that's fascinating and something that's both an opportunity and perhaps a bit of a challenge for historians. But there's a a kind of 
power that comes to the video game producers who do this, right? Because they can direct us towards specific points during the First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War that they think are important. And it, it's it's a really narrow history. I When I lived in the States, I was a consultant to a, a video games producer who will remain nameless. And we were doing an air power game. And it was a very, very narrow understanding of air power, of strategy, and specific periods in time. So do we risk kind of truncating and putting our blinkers on and missing a more nuanced understanding of history? Unquestionably. I mean, I I don't think in many ways this is the fault of video game makers. They are quite rightly prioritizing making the most interesting game possible. Uh, And, you know, there's no one, uh, well, I I say this, but of course, given the success of some of things like Crusader Kings, perhaps I shouldn't, I was going to say, no one will buy a video game where historical accuracy has been taken as the only reason to put it out there. It's more important that it should be fun. And of course, sometimes fun can be in discovering these sort of crazy nuances of history. But inevitably creating a game. You mentioned the Cold War. I think a really good example of this is the game Twilight Struggle. I'm not sure you've heard of this. It's a very famous in the world of board games, a two-player game about the Cold War. And it's a, a really fascinating game where essentially you play with cards, each of which represents a major event. So, you know, if you play a card like Cuban Missile Crisis, then that causes things to happen. You know, you can both make decisions and also set events in train. But what I think is interesting about the Twilight Struggle game, is that the whole thing is framed through the most kind of straightforward acceptance of the Cold War narrative you can imagine. You literally have two people uh, the playing the USSR and the USA who are making all of the decisions for the entire world, and countries are literally a single square on the map, which you can coup, you can you know move your influence into, or, or you can play events that threaten them with nuclear annihilation. It's great. It's probably teaching a lot of people who might never have heard of it about some of these interesting Cold War events. But it is utterly framing the narrative in terms of the Cold War was about the decisions made by the great powers. It was literally turning the world into a playground for communism versus capitalism. And that is one that I think uh, it's worth considering about these narratives, particularly because they are so, one might say, insidious. You know, they, they sort of settle upon you because you're thinking, this is just a game. This is no one's mistaking this for a kind of a rigorous study of history. Uh, we're expecting it not to be grossly inaccurate, but we're not expecting it to necessarily shape our point of view. And I think it does. I think it absolutely does. I think video games in particular, because as you mentioned, the air power example, you know, there's a vivid historical debate about how important and how effective allied air power was to the winning of the Second World War. But that's not going to be reflected in that game, because after all, the game will want you to say you won because you used your air power. And in the same way, you know, games that are first person shooters are going to inflate inevitably the importance and certainly the uh, the significance of individual conflicts on the battlefield, of even of individual soldiers. There's such a rich history here, isn't there? I, I, you know, when I was doing my PhD, I was deep into the history of the Rand Corporation, who was the world's first think tank, and they kind of invented, at least in the US context, war gaming, the idea that you can play out between different parties the events that could happen in real life. And there's so many criticisms of that as well, because you lose the, the well, you lose the importance of the human error. The fact that we are not perfect beings and we don't always make rational decisions and things can, well, go wrong. So 
I don't know. I, uh, I think I'm going to have to get you back on the podcast just to talk about war games at some point, Alwyn. But I love it. we have to talk about 1943. Today. Oh, we don't have to, but I really want to. Because you actually run the super successful at real time WW2 Twitter account. And every single day you tweet about what happens in real time during the Second World War in 1943. This is a kind of incredibly nuanced way of looking at digital history, isn't it? Uh, I'm glad you think so, because I think I've also had people saying that it's absurdly reductive and that you can't compress the importance and nuance of historical events into 140 or, or now 280 characters. Uh, yes, so I've been running real-time World War II since 2011. The eagle-eyed or eagle-eared listeners amongst you, do eagles have good ears? I'm moving on. It may have noticed that the war didn't last for 10 years, but I've actually restarted it, uh, much to my wife's horror. Uh, so I ran from, uh, yes, from September 1939. I started on what was the 1st of September 2011 slash 1939, continued for six years and have restarted it. And I'm now in 1943 again. So as you said, the idea is that every day I post tweets, pictures, videos, firsthand accounts that are, you know, uh, copied from historical sources that depict events that happened then, often from a perspective that would have been common at the time. So the idea is that rather than seeing events with the benefit of hindsight, knowing how the story ends, instead you can see events to some extent how they look to people at the time, the people on the ground, or in some cases in the air, but certainly kind of trying to get away from the sweeping narrative and start to sort of break down the Yes, the gritty nuances, particularly the things that kind of don't necessarily fit our received wisdom, our grand understanding of what the Second World War was and how it went. I can understand why some people might think you can't carry out a nuanced history of the Second World War on Twitter. You can't really get that visceral feel for the conflict, of course. But I think you really do provide some amazing detail, just to give our listeners an idea of what you can find on your Twitter account. Today, the British government has decided to suspend their Arctic supply convoys, carrying desperately needed materials to the USSR. And this is because the northern seas are thick with German warships and the lighter days make it easier for the Luftwaffe to find British ships. And then down the thread, you go into the fact that Stalin is furious at this because he thinks Churchill's playing a game where he wants the Nazis to fight against the Soviets until there's no one left, pretty much. So this is the sort of history that you can look out for on real-time WW2. But Owen, tell us, take us on a journey through 1943. Where should we begin? Well, in some ways, I think that perhaps we should begin a little earlier in 1942. You know, this is the time when you've seen the encirclement of the German forces in Stalingrad in the USSR. It's the time when you've seen the Battle of Midway in the Pacific, and it's the time when you've seen the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa. And it's these sort of three, these stunning successes, you know, the first major victories that the Allies have seen in each of these fronts, really, that essentially set the course for 1943. In many ways, 1943 is the year when it becomes apparent to everyone involved who's willing to see it, that the Axis will lose the war. And this also means, of course, that 1943 is a moment of, of sort of crisis and of opportunity. It's a time when the course that the war will take, the manner of that victory, what Europe will look like and what the Pacific will look like and what the empire, from a British point of view, will look like, is the time when all of those things become really quite sharply defined. 
So I think 1943 is a kind of a turning point in many ways, where you start to see the Second World War, in some ways, the arc of the Second World War take shape. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you say we should start in 1942 there, because with the successes at Al Alamein, a lot of people think that the war in North Africa is over by the end of 1942. But it really does push on through 1943 for a considerable period, doesn't it? Absolutely. The remains of the Axis forces in North Africa, the remains of the Africa Corps and the Italians, they don't surrender until May. You know, that's five months in. And that's because it's taken a long time, really, for Operation Torch and El Alamein, those two kind of pincers of the uh, American and uh, British and colonial forces, to meet up in Tunisia. And really, it's kind of the only one by that point of the sort of stunning losses that the Germans have suffered that year. In many ways, it's the surrender of the 6th Army at Stalingrad right at the end of January that sees a a kind of much more heavy blow, I think, to German morale, particularly on the home front. And, And it's also a much more crucial battlefield. You know, North Africa, although obviously important in many ways, I think it's not unfair to call it something of a sideshow in terms of the determination of the war. So I think the victory at Al Alamein, although it's it's vital in many ways for, certainly for British morale, you know, it reflects, I think you could say, less of a turning point in the course of the war than does, say, Stalingrad or even the invasion of Italy later in the year. Uh, there's, of course, the famous Churchill line that before El Alamein, the British never had a victory and afterwards they never had a defeat. And, you know, that is very much the mood music of 1943. This is a time when the Allies are finally able to turn the corner and make their advantages in terms of manpower and resources and strategic control of the sea and air really start to tell against the Axis. What caused the anarchy? How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now? Who won the Hundred Years' War? Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk? How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park? And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds. We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And they really do. I mean, Rommel is sent back to Germany and he's sent to be in charge of the Atlantic Wall and he has to try and reinforce that because on either side, you know, Hitler's going to be faced on multiple fronts now. And if you had captured and taken North Africa, if Rommel had been able to do that, then you could shut off so many supply routes for Allied forces as well. You could take control of that entire region. So it really was so vital for the Allies to win in North Africa. But they then start to move through to Italy, don't they? So take us through. I mean, one of the most fascinating parts of the war for me is Operation Husky. Indeed, the landing in Sicily. So this is the first time that the uh, Allies, the, the Western Allies, have performed a sort of full-scale amphibious invasion. You know, you have Operation Torch at the end of '42, but that is facing a very different kind of opposition, the Free French forces not really willing to fight to the death. Whereas the Germans and, uh, to some extent, the Italians who are positioned on Sicily, you know, this is extremely unfriendly terrain, and it's a nasty shock in many ways for the Allies to find themselves facing such determined opposition. You know, this is in some ways practice for Normandy, but it's also its own vital site, you know, its own vital theatre in the war. And I think that the landings in Sicily, which, of course, almost immediately bring the Italian government to change sides and and throw off Mussolini to some extent, effectively, uh, given that the Germans immediately reinstate him after he's rescued from captivity. This is a real kind of point where it becomes apparent, particularly to the German high command, that the war is no longer winnable on any particular front. Yeah, Mussolini, I think, meets Hitler in Salzburg to try and give Mussolini some sort of reassurance and bring his morale back up because like you say i think most people can see that italy is is largely lost or it will be as time goes forward just to the vast preponderance of force that's being pushed through by the allies in terms of husky you know and the fact that the axis powers weren't quite sure already about the timings of that allied invasion of sicily and that's because of that famous operation mincemeat Indeed. So this is a um, absolutely extraordinary coup in terms of British intelligence, where a set of forged papers is hidden on a body, a body that has uh, not, I think, ever been completely satisfactorily identified. Possibility that it was a Welsh tramp. Other people have suggested it might be a British soldier killed in a training accident. But this body is then dropped into the sea by a British submarine, And the papers in question then end up completely confusing the issue of exactly where and exactly when the Allies are planning to land. So, you know, this becomes a 
in many ways a kind of emblematic example of one of the contributions that the British have made uh, in terms of the astounding intelligence work that has been done. But also, in some ways, this demonstrates, I think, the, uh, the, the kind of complete superiority in many on many fronts of the allies at this stage it, it shows that you know they can afford to stage these extraordinarily elaborate and complex operations as part of a combined armed strategy which is already starting to overcome german defenses at this stage okay at the beginning of this we spoke about nuance and we focus a lot on north africa and italy because it's fascinating but tell us what's going on on the eastern front at this time so absolutely so 1943 of course is uh, a major turning point for the Germans and their Axis allies in the USSR because this is the year that begins with Stalingrad falling, the capture of the Sixth Army under General Paulus. Oh, sorry, Field Marshal Paulus, because of course we all know that one of the last things, one of the last vital communication messages that Hitler manages to get to Paulus when he and his men are surrounded in the broken ruins of Stalingrad in the middle of a Russian winter is a promotion to field marshal. The reason he does this, of course, no German field marshal has ever been taken alive in all of German history. And this is essentially, Hitler cannot send Paulus a pistol and a glass of whiskey via a telegram, but he can give him the next best thing. It's an order to commit suicide. Paulus doesn't take the bait. He and his rest of his men surrender over the course of a few agonizing days at the end of January, beginning of February. And that fall of Stalingrad is, it's a tremendous blow to German morale. And it really reassures the Western allies that the USSR is not going to collapse. The Red Army will not fold as soon as the door is kicked down, to paraphrase Hitler when he launched Operation Barbarossa. That, of course, is reinforced later that year uh, during Operation Citadel. You know, this is a German offensive, Battle of the Kursk, as perhaps you might better call it. Uh, seven to 8,000 tanks, about 2 million men, probably the largest battle that has ever happened in world history. Certainly, I hope it's the largest battle that will ever happen in world history. But this is a tremendous setback again for the Germans because their offensive, their summer offensive that in the last two years has always managed to capture huge areas of the USSR, has always managed to encircle whole Soviet armies, it fails. It's stopped. And although the Germans don't know it yet, and although I should say, although it's not happened yet, it's very clear that they will never conquer the USSR. Yeah, this is truly an epic battle and an epic defeat. But how has Stalin managed to go from a leader who is blindsided by Operation Barbarossa, by that rapid movement up to the gates of Moscow, moving his entire war-making industry across the entirety of the country to regroup, rebuild, reform, retrain, and now to start pushing back? How has he been able to get hold of that sort of material, those weapons, those arms? Well, one important factor here, of course, is Lend-Lease. This is the supply of uh, weapons, of fuel, of food, uh, even of the most mundane things like boots, uh, which flows from America primarily uh, to the USSR. And it's in 1943 that Lend-Lease really starts to have an effect. You know, this is the Red Army being outfitted with jeeps, being fed on American canned food. It's in 1943 that America brings in on the home front rationing in a serious way. This is the time when you start to see food rationed in America for the first time. This is when you start to see clothing and petrol rationed in the in America. And this is because, although 
all the American propaganda posters have smiling GIs with big cups of coffee saying, you know, uh, you do without so that he can have enough. It's not an American GI who's enjoying the benefits of that rationing. It's a Red Army soldier. And, you know, this flow of supplies, which you mentioned earlier with the suspension of the Arctic convoys, these are one of the routes by which material gets into the USSR. Lend-lease is, is really a sort of tremendous flow of essentially of, of fighting power. You know, you can think in some ways of World War II as almost being a sort of series of tremendous homeostatic diagrams of sort of, you know, not of armies moving around maps, but of flows of equipment. And it's in 1943 that the Allies are really starting to overcome their supply problems, to start defeating the menace of uh, German U-boats in the Atlantic, and to start showing that to have America as the world's industrial superpower, as an untouchable home base for war production, that cannot be beaten. The flow of weaponry and arms from there, it will equip and allow the Soviets and the British and the other colonial troops around the world to overcome anything the Axis can put together. That's really interesting. I think you explained that really well, because it's kind of the time that the Allied war machine comes together, right? This is when you start having the different levels of the armed forces. You've got air power, sea power, and land power coming together, along with the British Empire, the Americans, and the Soviets, all combining to really have that incredibly synchronized response to the Axis menace. And it's at this point that you start to see them overcoming the Germans and the Italians. But how about the Japanese? What's going on in the Pacific theatre? Great, great question. So obviously, we've been talking a lot about the Germans, both because the Western Front dominates, I think, often unfairly in our imaginations, but also because, of course, from very early in the conflict, uh, after America joined the war, uh, there has been a Germany first policy. The British, the Americans, and unsurprisingly, the Soviets have all been united in their belief that uh, the Germany must fall before the Japanese do. And there's also, of course, to consider that the Japanese have been fighting this war a lot longer than anyone else, except, of course, for the Chinese, who they have been fighting it against with tremendous suffering for the Chinese population. You know, Japan, in a sense, it isn't going anywhere. It especially isn't going anywhere because 1943 is where you stop seeing these Japanese successes after events like Midway in 42, but also battles like the Battle of the Kokoda Track, uh, north of Australia. This is the mountain pathway that runs across uh, Papua New Guinea. And it is the site, uh, although very small in terms of men and materiel, this is the site of absolutely brutal jungle warfare between uh, Australians, Americans, and their Papuan allies against the Japanese invaders. And this is an attempt, not to go into too much detail, to essentially establish a base that could threaten Australia. You know, the Japanese probably never have a chance of touching mainland Australia, but this is their dream. In order to dominate the Pacific, they need to have this chain of island bases stretching all around the South and West Pacific that are, you know, impregnable strongholds, places where they can defy the Allies and say, leave us alone. This is our greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere. You are never getting your colonies back. Try to come to some sort of terms with that. Of course, we know that's something that the Americans in particular are never going to accept. And 1943 is when we start to see that taking effect. This is when the Pacific strategy of island hopping is set later in the year. The decision to essentially skip some of these fortified Japanese bases to let them wither on the vine by capturing and interdicting their supply routes. 
so that if ships full of food, fuel and ammunition can't get to these places, the Japanese forces on those islands may as well not exist. And this, again, is a demonstration of this tremendous allied superiority in terms of ocean and air control. In 1943 is, I think, when you really start to see convoys, Japanese convoys that previously would have you know, slipped across the Pacific and reinforced these island bases. This is when you start to see them being systematically destroyed by American, Australian and British air power and sea power for that matter. I think there's a really emblematic example of this in June of 1943, when the Japanese abandoned the island of Kiska. Uh, this is one of the Aleutian Islands off the coast of Alaska, and it is symbolically the only piece of Native American soil, of homeland American soil, that the uh, Japanese ever occupied during the Second World War. And after a year with uh, thousands of Japanese soldiers and much valuable war material stranded on this rock in the North Pacific, uh, they leave without a shot being fired. Although amusingly or tragically, depending on how you define it, the Americans do manage to kill several of their own groups while attempting to take Kiska back in a series of friendly fire accidents because they don't realise that the Japanese have left. Oh, wow. That's an ultimate intelligence failure, isn't it? But your history there really highlights to us just how far the Pacific campaign, well, spread. I mean, you think about that up into the Arctic, into Alaska, then all the way down to Australia. It is uh, it is quite a theatre of conflict. And like you say, you know, you've had the fall there of Hong Kong, of Singapore, and the islands around New Guinea become the place where there has to be a line drawn in the sand and a fight has to be put forwards. And it's here, luckily, the Americans are able to mobilise and really provide that force that is needed. And places like New Guinea are falling to the Japanese, but then being regained by the Australians and the Allied forces. And there are ferocious battles going on at this point. You know, we think about Okinawa that comes later, but Guadalcanal happens in 42 and into 43. It's only one through into February 1943. So I, I really think you have shown us the way in which 1943 is perhaps, I don't know if you agree, the most important year of the war. Is that too much to say? It's a really interesting point, because I think, in some ways, if you asked most people to name important events during the Second World War, you know, you'd very quickly get things like the D-Day landings, you'd get the outbreak of war, the fall of France, you'd get Operation Barbarossa, you'd get the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Not a single one of those happens during 1943. This is the time of, in some ways, of forgotten battles, these attempts to break through in Italy, these attempts to recapture the islands that the Japanese have taken, the attempts on the Eastern Front by the Soviets to you know, follow on their success of Stalingrad. There's a whole offensive that follows it where they get as far as uh, Kharkov and then are turned back. The Germans recapture the city within a matter of weeks. And I think it's something that's really worth stressing. This is not something that people at the time understand as an inevitability. They may think of the Allies as being on the winning side. They may think of, you know, there being an inexorable power of American production, of Russian manpower, of British air and sea power. But it takes a long, long time for those things to come into effect. And in 1943, there are still people, perhaps not necessarily expecting for the Allies to lose the war, but knowing that there's a long, long road ahead. You know, this is something where... Theoretically, people predict 
the Japanese holding out until 1947, perhaps, 1948. You know, as estimates for the fall of Germany go all the way from 1944 to 1946. This is going to be a long, hard road, and there's an enormous amount of blood to be spilt. I think in many ways, 1943 is when people can see the path to victory and see just how hard it is. Everything that people have been, everything that commanders or indeed the ordinary people have been focusing on up till now is about stopping that tide of Axis expansion, about survival. If you're in the Soviet Union, it's been quite literally about the day-to-day, -day, you know, whether the, the country will survive, whether the state will survive. If you're in occupied Europe, you know, you face years ahead of you of Nazi occupation. If you're in areas occupied by the Japanese, arguably even worse conditions. This is something that it's very easy in hindsight for us to understand how it happened. But at the time, it's much more difficult. You're in, lost in the fog of war. You're on the ground level. That's what I think the, my Twitter account attempts to capture. And I think it also attempts to express some of the contingency of these decisions, you know, the way that things were not preordained. It wasn't inevitable that the Normandy landings would occur in 944. There were other suggestions to continue in Italy, to move into Greece, to move into southern France. All of these ways, all of these decisions that would make the war pan out in the way that we know it did, many of them are made in 1943. Orwin, thank you so much. As your Twitter moves into 1944, we will get you back on to talk about the importance of 1944 and the key events. But I urge all our listeners to go on to follow real-time World War II. And I know you won't mention it yourself, but you have a patron as well that people can join up and sign up. So please go and do that. Orwin, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.